So this morning we're going to be focusing on two of the most central biblical ceremonies. Communion and circumcision. And we are going to be practicing one of these ceremonies at the end of our service this morning. I will let you speculate on which one that's going to be. But the reason these two particular, circumcision and the Passover, uh, is because when we land in chapter 5 of Joshua, we've been reading through, the Israelites grind to a halt right in the middle of this wonderful God story and stop to celebrate these exact two ceremonies. They cross the Jordan River and celebrate, uh, reinstitute the ceremony of circumcision and then celebrate the Passover. Um, we see that immediately upon Joshua and the nation of Israel crossing this Jordan River, immediately upon them experiencing the miraculous power of God, flinging all the local nations into terror, instead of them attacking right in that moment when their own morale was sky high and the fear of God was filling their enemies, instead they stop and they cripple the strength of their entire army by reinstituting the practice of circumcision, which had been suspended for the previous 40 years. What a terrible strategic military decision. I'm going to take 40,000 men and incapacitate them in full view of the enemy for almost two weeks. Why not strike while the iron was hot? God had clearly given them his blessing. They just walked through the Jordan River on dry land. Why not attack? Why stop for a couple of weeks so that you can circumcise all the men in your nation and so you can observe the Passover? It's counterintuitive at the least. Immediately following the circumcision of 40,000 plus men, the Israelites celebrate the Passover meal, but not just because they wanted to. They celebrated on its annually appointed day, just as the law of Moses instructed. Why stop a military campaign for a religious holiday? Would you stop a war for Passover? And after wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, what are the odds, tongue-in-cheek, you know, God with odds. What are the odds that the Passover's holiday date would correspond with the exact time that the Israelites crossed into the promised land? Within a week. So that they could stop and observe that prior to entering in. It's beautiful. And even more fascinating than the importance of these essential Jewish ceremonies being observed at this moment is the one-to-one -one correlation they bear with us and our covenant with Christ today. So our study this morning is not just a historical account of a couple of ancient rituals. It's actually to inform and deepen our own understanding of our covenantal faith with the Lord. So I would like to read to us Joshua chapter 5, see what God's people experienced in those days, and personalize it, understand what we can take from this, what God has to say for, to us for our day and age. So Joshua chapter 5. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, Joshua, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeah Haaraloth. 
And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who had come out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they'd come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel had walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. So the Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised along the way. Now when the circumcising of the entire nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. Now, while the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, the unleavened cakes and the parched grain, and the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. There was no longer any manna for the people of Israel, but they ate the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. So picture yourself standing there in this moment of God's redemptive story, having just walked across the Jordan River on dry ground. Why do the Israelites reinstitute circumcision? Why right then? Because what they had just seen from God had left them awestruck. They weren't proud of their accomplishment. They were in awe of a miracle. They weren't pumped up by their own might. They were experiencing the fear and reverence of an almighty God. So while the nations around them may have been afraid of them, they were standing in honor and fear of the Lord for what had just happened because they knew they did not do it. So to go back to our original question, why didn't they run right into battle in Jericho? Because they had unfinished business with God. They stopped immediately and reaffirmed their covenant with the Lord. From what they had just seen, they knew that if they had him on their side, the promised land was as good as conquered. Now, if we look backwards about 800 years before this moment, we see that God began his covenant with the forefather of the Hebrew people, Abraham. And God specifically instructed Abraham in Genesis 17 to use the ceremony of circumcision as the sign and seal of his covenant. And if we fast forward from Abraham to about 50 years before this moment, we see that God gave Moses in Exodus 12 the commemoration of the Passover as their means of celebrating the proof of God's power and promises. So the Jewish people would not even be standing where they were if God had not first called Abraham and promised to bless his generations. And they would not be standing where they were if God had not also called Moses and promised to deliver them from slavery. And now Joshua stands at the brink of the fulfillment of God's promises. A man called by God to undertake what had been initiated 800 years before. So here's the point of the answer to that question. Why did Joshua put them at a military disadvantage? Because he wanted to put them at a spiritual advantage. He put them at a military disadvantage because he wanted to put them at a spiritual advantage for all that was to come. He knew that their military might was not their key to victory.
There's a psalm written by King David, Psalm 20, that says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Joshua is embodying that faith here. And rather than running on human emotion and excitement or being lured by the fear of his enemies, oh, the time is ripe. He stops to honor the Lord and reestablish the covenant with God's people. So before we look any deeper on it, this is the right moment for us to stop and just take a personal uh, a moment for reflection. Just as Joshua stopped before everything to focus on the Lord, and to put him first. So also, we're not supposed to just rush into things. We're not supposed to just make hasty decisions. We're not supposed to go into situations without having prayed first. We're not supposed to try to take matters into our own hands because the situation seems right. We need to reaffirm our covenant with God before every one of our battles as well. So that the victory might come through his power and not ours. There's a quote I'd like to read to you from a biblical scholar. His name is Donald Campbell, and he made this point in this way. He says, God is never in a hurry, although his children sometimes are. If you feel pressured to make a decision or to act immediately in a situation without time <coughs> to consult the Lord <coughs> about it, you need to resist the pressure. God does not ask you to reach decisions without adequate opportunity for prayer and consideration. So Joshua's example, never mind all the other things you may gain from it, is something that we should put into practice ourselves. If he wasn't too busy to stop and put the Lord first, we should not be either. So this passage this morning is essentially a deeper examination of these two stages of anyone's relationship with God. There's the stage where we meet God, we are initiated in, we, we join the covenant that was uh, observed through and symbolized through circumcision. And the maintaining of that agreement, that covenant, which was observed through the Passover meal. How many times were Hebrew males circumcised? Once. How many times were they reaffirming the covenant through Passover? Every year, constantly, steadily. And that should be our approach to faith as well. How many times do you need to be saved? Once. How often do you need to recommit yourself to the Lord and to his covenant? Constantly. And they did not forget that at this moment in history. I think it's interesting as we do a little comparison between rituals and reality, between ceremonies and the things that go on on the inside of us. I think it's interesting the Bible records for us that the Passover was kept during the wilderness wanderings. Uh, it's in Numbers 9, 1 and 2. It talks about one of those instances in the wilderness where the Passover was kept. Um, but here in our passage, it clearly states that circumcision wasn't kept. And yet in Exodus 12, the law clearly states that no one circumcised person will be able to participate in the Passover. They're unclean. So in my mind, what that means is that the generation that came out of Egypt, all of the older generation was able to observe Passover but all the young ones being raised up because they were uncircumcised could merely watch, could merely stand to the side because they would not be permitted, even as young men, to participate in this because they were uncircumcised. And that's a violation of the law. You're not allowed to practice the Passover if you are not um, dedicated to the Lord in that way. 
So we can extrapolate that only the older generation participated. Um, but it's such an important point to recognize because clearly the older generation didn't honor God. <laughs> They're the ones that died in the wilderness. They never made it. And so this practice of this ceremony wasn't what God was looking for because it's actually the ones who lived their lives in the wilderness not having had a chance yet to celebrate that who are the ones that God honored and said, you're my children, I'm going to raise you up. And this is exactly how it is for us as well. You know, do we know any um, friends or family or people that go to church but it doesn't reflect itself in their lives in any way? Or do, have we ever heard of a person or seen a, a person that claims to be a Christian but it doesn't seem to matter? Or people who grew up and you know, said a sinner's prayer in Sunday school but the rest of their life doesn't look like it very much? Or someone who was baptized but then kind of fades away, it was kind of like a passing fancy? We've seen that, right? And here we have it happening at like a generation level. Entire generation did all the rituals, but did not have the honor of God in their hearts. An entire generation of people had not participated in that ritual, and yet God honors them and says, I'm going to raise you up. And they ended up honoring the Lord and being the ones to fulfill His promise. This is kind of the point of it all. It isn't just those who are baptized or circumcised or who say a prayer or who so, show up on church on Sundays who are God's people. God's people are all those who have given their hearts to Him, all those who have given their lives to Him. All the outward rituals in the world mean nothing if a person does not turn over the keys of their heart to God and let Him take over their lives. We humans constantly forget this, but this is something that God has been saying from the beginning. Uh, do you know that that same word for circumcision, talking physically about every male when they're circumcised at eight days of age, uh, it's also applied to other parts of the body in Scripture? In Exodus 6.12, uh, Moses says that he is a man of uncircumcised lips, his speech, his words, they're still worldly. They're still impure. They're not holy enough to speak as God's messenger to Pharaoh. Um, in Deuteronomy 10 and then Deuteronomy 30, Moses challenges the Israelites to, quote-unquote, circumcise their hearts. They should remove all those attractions and desires and pride that surround and weigh down God's love, which is trying to lead them from within. In Jeremiah 6.10, God says to the prophet Jeremiah that the Israelites cannot listen because they have uncircumcised ears. They, they hear only as the world hears. They listen to what the world says. They accept what the world teaches. They don't have the ability to recognize or even discern God's quiet voice when he speaks. And in Acts 7.51, right before he's stoned, Stephen condemns his accusers saying this, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. So if we're broadening this definition of circumcision all the way from Moses, Moses himself broadening the definition to say it's not just about a ritual. There's an inward sort of circumcision that has to happen, a circumcision of how we listen to what we hear a circumcision of how we choose what we say, a circumcision of what we love and are willing to keep loving and what we fight to, to take temptation away so that we will not fall in love with. If it started with them, right when circumcision was being used, then clearly it isn't just some ritual performed in a religious service that makes us right with God. We need more than that 
We need more than to just have a blessing said over us in a church as a child. We need speech, God's speech to come out of our lips, speech that can change the world. We need ears tuned to hear the Holy Spirit's voice, not just the noise surrounding us. And we need hearts that beat only for what God desires. And so Joshua knew this, right? Joshua was a man that was with Moses receiving the Ten Commandments. He was a man that went into the tent of meeting with Moses to speak with God when the, the cloud descended. And the Bible says when Moses left, Joshua stayed behind. Joshua was not just a military general. He was a man of God. And so he understood this. So he's not about to go into military campaigns if the spiritual condition of his people and of himself are not right. And so he stopped to do what was important before he moved on to do what was necessary. So let's move for a second to Passover, the second ceremony that's mentioned, Joshua leading God's people in. Uh, it's a very unlikely setting for a Passover. Uh, they're on the plains of Jericho, meaning literally there's a flat ground and then there's a wall. And your enemies are like looking out at you, watching you. You're just sitting, you're on the plains of Jericho, about to proceed to attack at some point. So the, the Israelites are sitting there on the plains of Jericho in full view of their enemy on their tall walls, and they choose to stop to observe a meal. We see from the reading in chapter 5 here that all the local nations had quote-unquote heard about the Jordan River. The news was spreading. So clearly there had been locals watching the entire event and then running to report what they saw as the nation of Israel made its way across on dry land. They were standing and watching, and then all of a sudden the river dries, and they're standing and watching, and all of a sudden the Israelites start coming over after the Ark of the Covenant paves the way. And then those people run, <laughs> and they run and they tell. And so these people who are afraid, who are watching and observing, see the Israelites stop. Why the Passover in addition to circumcision? Because just as circumcision is the means God gave his people to enter into the covenant with him, the Passover meal is the means he gave them to maintain their relationship with him. Circumcision is an outward action that's intended to reveal the inner change, the circumcision of the heart, as the Apostle Paul puts it. And Passover celebrates the proof that God is keeping his covenant promises. He delivered the Jews from death and sent them out towards the promised land, just as he had promised Abraham. So if we have no circumcision, or if we have circumcision with no Passover, that's like having a blind faith that God will act, but then never seeing the proof. The Passover is the proof. It's God's deliverance. But if we have Passover with no circumcision, it's like God delivering people from one crisis only to have them ultimately perish because they weren't truly his people in the first place. We need to be his people and then see his power. And so for the Israelites, circumcision and Passover are the entrance in and the maintenance of, the deliverance of, the fulfillment of, its package deal. And so these two key ceremonies and the fact that Joshua leads his people into celebrating them back to back within a period of maybe about 10 days uh, qualifies as a 100% reestablishment of the covenant. These are the two key factors. We're putting them back into place now the Hebrews are ready to enter into the promised land. Now they are right with God. Now God can honor them as they have sought to honor him. 
Every single powerful act that God commits on behalf of the nation of Israel from this point forward under the leadership of Joshua is based on the integrity of the wholehearted commitment that his people made to him right there on the banks of the Jordan. And the Passover is the, the power piece. Um, personally, I was wondering if that was possibly one of the most inspiring Passovers that any of God's people had ever celebrated. Because if you think about it, they're right there on the plains of Jericho. The nation of Israel is sitting back, comfortably eating a meal that celebrates how God just 40 years before overthrew the mightiest nation of the world at that time, Egypt. I wonder if as they ate it, they thought, remember what Pharaoh, what happened to Pharaoh through God? I wonder what God's going to do to these guys. Remember how great the plagues and the power of God? I wonder what's going to happen next. They were on the brink of God doing another act of power, you know, showing his justice and his deliverance. Yet again, they're going into battle, and this is such a powerful example of God overthrowing the nations. So I wonder what the people of Jericho thought as they watched the Jews celebrate a meal. And I wonder what it was like to eat the bread, thinking about what God would do if he had done this. So we need to move forward to our day as well. We can't just have this be historical, even though I'm sure up to this point you can see so many of the parallels. We need to move forward and talk about the faith that Jesus has given to us. Uh, do we have a rite of passage, an initiation into our faith that outwardly shows our inward belief? We do. It's baptism. It's an outward sign and ceremony that doesn't save us, but is meant to show our inward change of heart, our, our circumcision of heart. And just as physical circumcision in the Old Covenant didn't guarantee true, true circumcision of their hearts, so today baptism, being baptized, does not guarantee a true inward salvation of the heart. It's meant to be a rite of passage uh, from death to life, from unbelief to belief, from lost to found, from sinner to saint. And I guess I'm fairly thankful for us as Christians um, that circumcision uh, is translated by Jesus and by the Apostle Paul and how he talks about it, which we'll read a little bit later, to baptism. Uh, what do you think it would be like if physical circumcision was still the requirement to become a believer today? Ever thought about that? What if... What if part of your evangelism to your neighbors needed to include the fact that all the males in their household would need to undergo surgery to their most private places in order to join your church? Uh, what, do you, what effect do you think that would have on church attendance in our modern day and age? Um, a more sobering point, how many quote-unquote megachurches do you think would exist if circumcision rather than baptism was asked of the thousands of worshipers. It's a higher bar. It's a harder measure. Um, but it's still true. <laughs> and I think that we lose the intensity of what salvation demands of us. Um, because it hasn't changed, actually. It just somehow seems simpler to do. Um, what would it be like? if we still required circumcision in that same way. And we kind of joke, but isn't this the point? 
Our faith is supposed to be more of a sacrifice to us than a religious benefits package. What do you get from God? What do you get from Jesus? Awesome, I'll take that. I'll have one, of, one for everyone in my family. Versus I'm willing to undergo the cutting. I'm willing to undergo the stripping down of who I am. I'm willing to cut away all the parts. Jesus said, you know, be willing to lose a hand or an eye to get into heaven, lame or blind, rather than stay bodily whole, worldly whole, but lose the big picture. Lose your soul for eternity. I think this is a, a point of kind of maybe uh, joking, but um, probably more accurately a point of confession that we should all make ourselves included. Um, we need to have, we still need to have circumcised hearts before we can be saved, before we can be baptized. We need to have all of our fleshly motivations of our hearts cut out. We need to be purified in our ambitions, in our desires, in our wills, in our passions. Mm. Paul made this distinction clear. Um, there was much confusion with the earliest Christians because circumcision had always been the way to initiate yourself into God's family. And uh, Jesus said, believe. I've satisfied the requirements of the law. Believe in my name. Be baptized and you'll be saved. And so gave this outward symbol as a ceremony to honor the inward change, the circumcision of the heart. Uh, and so Paul goes uh, as far as to say to the earliest believers that they shouldn't accept circumcision uh, physically um, unless they want to then also just take on all the other laws from the old covenant. Um, but those laws are precisely what Jesus died on the cross to satisfy. So Jesus gives us the two central commands, two central practices to our faith. We call them ordinances, calls from uh, Christ. Uh, ceremonies that we as his followers, as his disciples, are to follow. And that is baptism and the Lord's Supper. So if baptism corresponds with the Old Testament circumcision... It's a rite of initiation and commitment that wouldn't follow that the Lord's Supper, which we're about to celebrate, would parallel the meaning and intent of Passover? Yeah, <laughs> it's one-to-one. -one. The banks of the Jordan River replicate exactly what we do through baptism and communion. Uh, the Lord's Supper is us honoring, celebrating, maintaining our covenant with Christ, celebrating His power and deliverance recommitting ourselves in this church now on a weekly basis to that covenant. Jesus takes the original act of God's deliverance of his people from death and slavery in Egypt, and he imports his meaning, the ultimate act of deliverance from death and slavery to sin. To sin. So if baptism shows that our hearts have turned towards God and were baptized once, then communion shows that we are earnestly pursuing the keeping of that covenant for the rest of our lives. And we recommit ourselves constantly as we await the fulfillment of us entering the promised land ourselves. So these parallels to me are just so beautiful. They're so precious. They're uh, informing. Why do we do what we do? They, they break down the concept of God being a different God at different times, which some people says, well, the Old Testament God was wrathful and Jesus is kind and peaceful. And in this time, all they had was this. And now we have this. No, God has always been God. He's always been saying the same thing. And although different people of different cultures have honored and worshipped in different forms, when it's been right, 
when it's been true, it's always been their heart to their creator. And the means and the methods have changed. But the fact that they parallel so closely what we do today to what they did, you know, almost 3,000 years ago is, is mind-boggling to me. So here is the last piece of the baptism puzzle. Uh, the last clue as to why we can be certain that God, Jesus wasn't saying that baptism would save someone without faith. Any more than physical circumcision could have saved Israelites without true faith. In Matthew 18, the Great Commission, Jesus actually commands his followers not baptize people so that they may become disciples, but make disciples and then baptize them. For some that have been in New Hope before, we might have studied this together. This is something we need to keep in mind as we pray <clears throat> about how we reach out to our neighbors. Are we trying to get someone converted and baptized? Or are we trying to truly make a lifelong disciple of Christ? When you read that passage in Matthew 18 and look at it in a literary way, in a grammatical way, we see that it reads, make disciples. That is the first word in that sentence. That is the verb. Make disciples by three means. Going, baptizing, and teaching. You can't make a disciple by staying at home on the couch. You can't make a disciple by putting your head in the sand. We go. But the going isn't the point. You can go lots of places and nothing good will come from it. But you can make a disciple as you go and as you baptize, that is the forming, the ratifying, the initiation of that disciple. But what a crime to baptize someone and leave them not knowing who Jesus is or what he's called them to or what their identity is. They need to be taught. And so this is Matthew 18. We make disciples. That is our goal. That's why we use the terms missional and being a missionary as part of our church so often. We are not students here. We are not just learning about God. This is not a Christian college. This is not a Christian seminary. These are not just TED Talks. This is helping us learn how to do the one thing, which is make other people see how beautiful Christ is and commit their entire lives to following him. Not just say a prayer, be a convert, get baptized. Those are the outward symbols. We're looking for the heart and praying for in ourselves and others the heart change. We're not looking for converts. We're not looking for church members. We're not just trying to count how many people were baptized in the last calendar year. Converts can be short-lived. Church membership is fickle. And how many people who've been baptized in a Christian service have ended up walking away unchanged? The challenge to us, where we need to take this to heart, is we need to strive to not be a church that counts Sunday attendance, as if those numbers prove how many disciples are there. We need to not be a church who just counts salvation prayers or numbers at baptismal ceremonies as if those head counts really show our true eternal effectiveness. We need to seek to make true disciples and to be true disciples. Let's measure our lives by how radically we've committed to God, how deeply we've been willing to cut away our worldly thought patterns and beliefs in order to more purely reflect his image. Let's not just be excited by a new visitor on a Sunday if we then look back and see that so many former visitors have come and gone and never given their heart and life to God fully. We're not looking to celebrate we're not looking for a show. We're not looking for numbers. We're looking for 
disciples. This is what Jesus calls us to. So the question then for us is, uh, where do we stand in the life cycle of a believer? Have you been circumcised? In our day and age, that means, have you been willing to cut your heart free from all the things the world tells you are better? From all the things that your flesh tempts you to want, which in the back of your mind, you know, they're just not good for me. If we've been willing to turn to God and cut those unnecessary distractions and weights off, then we've entered into a life. That's a once-in-a-lifetime experience. But we can wander away from practicing that. We can forget the God who saved us. It's so easy to do on a daily basis. We can sit down and pray for half an hour in the morning and stand up and within five minutes have already forgotten what we talked and thought about and not be acting in a way that honors God. So I don't even think the, the once a week communion is enough. We probably need to keep communion that's in our pocket and have a little buzzer on our phone every five minutes. Take out a piece and take it to remind us. Oh, it's been five minutes and I haven't thought about Jesus enough. We need constant recommitment to the covenant and we need to know what we've committed to. We need constantly be inviting people into this relationship because without the cutting away for them and the constant recommitment, they will never enter the promised land. There is no hope. If there's no hope for people that even think they have hope but are faking it, then there certainly is no hope for people that are rejecting it outright or want nothing to do with it. If God can't overlook people trying to do the right thing and count that as righteousness, he certainly is not going to overlook those that say, God, you are not there, or I do not love you. So the circumcision of the heart has to be one and, one and, and done. One, one moment for one lifetime, one moment for each person. Uh, and as you pray about your, for yourselves, if you've not taken that step, it takes that. <laughs> It takes the beginning before the living. And for the people that you're seeking, don't just try to get people to come to church. Don't just try to get someone baptized and then sort of like, whew, great. And don't just look and be like, oh, I did this. No, are we pursuing Christ? Look back at the people that you have led to Christ in the past or been along. Are they pursuing Christ? And if not, go after them. Wrangle them into a closer relationship with the Lord so that they might be living as disciples because that's the goal. Not just the stating of belief or faith. The living of that faith is the goal. So the last thing as we bring this to a close, the last final question uh, that bears our consideration. Uh, why would God choose circumcision in the first place? Why would he choose circumcision to be the sign of his covenant with Abraham and all his generations? And how can it even be a sign if it's something so private and always hidden? You might remember from the story of Noah and his sons, there was a moment when his son Shem um, inadvertently walked into a tent and his father had drunk too much wine and passed out and was naked in the tent. And Shem, through no fault of his own, walked in and saw his father's nakedness. And immediately walked out and got his brothers and the other brothers walked in backwards with a blanket and kind of laid it over to respect uh, the, the privacy of their father. Um, from this story alone, uh, we know, uh, because when Noah wakes up, Shem is cursed, cursed for life, simply because he saw the nakedness of his father. This, this intimacy, this privacy, this 
um, this high standard and high opinion for modesty uh, is something that God prized and that the Jewish people as a whole kept faithfully, rigorously. So why would God choose circumcision as a sign to the nations if it was something that no one would ever see? How could it be a sign? How could it be a seal to them between me and you, Abraham, between me and all your generations, if it's something that not even the other Jews, after they were circumcised, would see because of their just tremendous barriers and restrictions in regards to modesty and um, respectability? The answer to this is in God's own words to Abraham as he instituted the ceremony and the, the ritual of circumcision. And these words echo true for us all these years later. God said to Abraham, you shall be circumcised. Meanwhile, Abraham was 99 at the time. And his son with him, who I believe was 19, Isaac at the time. So it began by a step of faith. It began by a believer's circumcision. If we believe in a believer's baptism, right? This was not just a child at eight days old. This was uh, an acceptance of God's covenant. He said, you shall be circumcised and it shall be a sign of the covenant. And here are the key words. Between me and you. It'll be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Do you hear God saying that to Abraham? Between me and you. The sign and the seal and the symbol were for the saved. Do you see that? The sign is for the saved. It's God's proof to us that we are His. It's His reminder to us that we belong to Him. And our faith is hidden today as well. We can't see someone's heart. We can't prove someone's salvation or someone's lack thereof. It's hidden. It's a sign and a seal between God and us. It's not a show for others to see. It's not a church service to attend. It's a private, hidden, secret, wonderful sacrifice of ourself to our Maker. So the sign and the seal are for us. It's given to us to know that we belong, to know whose we are. But our lives are not supposed to be hidden or secret. Our lives lived for God, lived by the Holy Spirit, are supposed to be a city on a hill. It's supposed to be a light in the darkness. So we, for ourselves, when we close our eyes and we go into that quiet place and we talk to the Lord, that hidden cut, we know We've given ourselves to the Father. But when we walk out of that quiet place, we're not trying to show and prove for ourselves who we are to the world. We're trying to live for God for the world's sake. And they are meant to see that, meant to benefit from that, meant to see God and look at His sealed people, sealed with the Holy Spirit now, just as they were sealed with the sign of circumcision. They're meant to see those actions and say, oh, those are the people who belong to God. They're meant to look at our lives and have their hearts melt in fear at times. Because if our God for us, for who we are, is willing to be that for us, how great and mighty must He be? And the nations are meant to see the works of God, not our own power, but God's works, God's glory and be awestruck by it, just as Jericho and all those people were. Jericho didn't see anything about the circumcision that was done quietly, and after the warriors were clothed, they wouldn't see any signs of it after, but between the people and God, they knew where they stood. 
They made it right between them and God. And they knew it. And then their actions were bold and courageous. They took risks because they knew that God was for them and he was with them. So may the nations around us hear of our God who is mighty. May they recognize that we are the circumcised of heart and mind and speech and life. May they see that we have invited Christ to cut away all the worldly parts of us on the inside so that what shines out might be holy. We willingly accept that cut and we gratefully celebrate the cup, Jesus' power at work in our lives. Please bow with me. I'd like to read from Colossians 2 and 3 as a closing blessing over us um, before Danny comes forward to lead us in communion this morning. This is a powerful passage. Please take this personally. Take this to heart. Believers, just as you received Jesus Christ the Lord, just as you received him, right? Now walk in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. For it's only in him that the whole fullness of God dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him. <coughs> him who is the head of all rule and authority, in him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him, having forgotten and forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. These he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Amen.